On the 18th of June 2012, I went uh, with a group of other academics and think tank people, I don't know what the collective term for think tank people is, but anyway, to Kabul University to meet a class of law and politics students. Um, and naively, we had imagined, because the election was coming up, just as an election going on in Afghanistan at the moment, a presidential election, and we had naively imagined that if we were going to speak to politics students, we would speak to them about who might be the next president in succession to Karzai. But in fact, these students wanted to talk about the security position, and particularly about NATO's ongoing commitment to Afghanistan, um, and, of course, about the problems of Taliban safe havens in Afghanistan. And there was one particularly outraged and irate student who referred to President Obama's visit to Kabul, which had happened just six weeks previously. On the 1st of May 2012, Obama and President Karzai had signed uh, the enduring a document called the Enduring Strategic Partnership between the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and the United States of America. The agreement included arrangements for a long-term security relationship and for the possibility of American forces remaining in Afghanistan after the NATO withdrawal from uh, offensive operations in 2014 for the purposes, as the wording put it, of training Afghan forces and targeting the remnants of al-Qaeda. The agreement was trumpeted on Afghan television by both Obama and Karzai. That was not what agitated this uh, student of Kabul University. What agitated him was that in the early hours of the following morning at 4.01 a.m. Afghan time, when he should no doubt have been asleep, he had decided to watch American television. And he had seen the same President Obama speaking to a domestic audience in the United States from Bagram Air Base, in which he told the American people that our troops will be coming home. Now, ultimately, of course, these statements are possibly compatible. Uh, but, of course, from the point of view of the Afghan student body, there was an implicit contradiction. Famously, uh, at least for those of us who read military history and read military matters, uh, General Sir Rupert Smith uh, wrote a book in 2005 called The Utility of Force, The Art of War in the Modern World, in which he characterized today's conflicts as wars amongst the people. He was reflecting on his own experience in Northern Ireland and in Bosnia, but what he wrote also caught the emerging concerns of British and Allied soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were engaged, uh, as armies in most counterinsurgency campaigns have been engaged, in securing the loyalty of the local population. Wars amongst the people, the title that, uh, or the phrase that he used in the Utility of Force, Rupert Smith used, have characterized uh, the operating environment in which armies have, and especially recently, found themselves in those sort of conflicts. What I want to talk about tonight is not so much to do with the operating environment, with wars among the people as Rupert Smith described them, and much more the strategic context. These are not separate issues. 
What does war among the people mean in the making of national strategy? And my concern is not so much with the situation, uh, the loyalties of peoples caught in the crossfire of a combat zone, but more with the role of peoples in mature democracies in the making of strategic decisions. Obama's problem in May 2012 was that he gave one message to the people of Afghanistan and a seemingly different message to the people of the United States. He told each what he thought they wanted to hear, but in the process, he caused confusion and dismay. He has not been alone in recent years. When he was Prime Minister, David Cameron said in 2010 that Britain would end its war in Afghanistan by 2015 and went on to explain that he had set a clear withdrawal date because the British people expected it and they were right to do so. He said nothing about the objectives of the United Kingdom government within Afghanistan or the potential consequences of the timing for the Afghan people or what a desirable outcome might look like for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Both the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom were effectively treating their own electorates as partners in the decision-making process. This is much more significant in the making of strategy than wars amongst the people in an operational and tactical sense. In the latter, the people are treated as the passive objects of influence. In the former, they become active participants in the formation of policy. But as Obama's mixed message in May 2012 showed, the people in the theatre of the war and the people at home in Western democracies are not so easily separated, especially in a world which is, as we are so often reminded, interconnected in which the transmission of news lies no longer in the hands of professional journalists or can be easily managed by governments and their desire to control the news flow. Today, the message given in the theatre of operations cannot in practice diverge from that given at home without running the risk of inconsistency at best and direct self-contradiction at worst. Both Obama and Cameron, who chose deadlines for the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, which bore less relationship to the possible situation in that country and much more relationship to the political and electoral situations in their home countries. Their objectives were defined less in terms of identifiable objectives within Afghanistan and more in terms of what came to be called exit strategies. Exits are not strategies. Exits are means of getting out, uh, are more accurately, therefore, ways rather than ends. By admitting the role of democracy and strategy, the leaders of democratic states have put themselves between a rock and a hard place. In order to explain to their, to their nations why their armed forces are engaged in faraway places of which they know little, they used the vocabulary of mass mobilization borrowed from the Second World War. They are ready to let these wars be called wars of choice 
but they use words which suggest that they are actually wars of necessity. Now, to be fair to President Obama, he was much more circumspect in this regard than George W. Bush had been, who was only too happy to cite Pearl Harbor after the 9-11 attacks, or indeed than our own Tony Blair had been, who was very ready to compare the appeasement of Hitler with the appeasement uh, of Saddam Hussein. But the consequences of Obama's circumspection was a reputation for indecision, for lack of clarity, and for a failure to provide the strategic leadership required, not just by the United States, but by NATO and the West as a whole. The alternative is no better, as David Cameron's record shows. Unlike Obama, he did stick to the sort of vocabulary that George W. Bush had used. Three times in his prime ministership, he spoke of an existential conflict, of a generational war, and of direct threats to the British way in life, of life. Over Libya, in January, over Libya in 2011, in January 2013, over the Al-Qaeda attack on the BP gas installation in Algeria, and in June 2015, after the IS-inspired attack on British citizens in Sousse, in Tunisia. His words created just as much strategic confusion as Obama's had done, but for different reasons. What his words exposed was the gap between his rhetoric and his intent. He spoke of a big war, but did little. For a British people engaged in so many existential wars simultaneously, those at home looked remarkably at peace, bathed in comparative security, and in that, of course, reflected the general norms that we have become accustomed to in British society. The effects of democracy on strategic decision-making seem to be that national leaders want to overpromise and underdeliver, or overdramatize and underperform, when they should perhaps more sensibly be underpromising and overdelivering. If substance match rhetoric, Britain will be doing much more than committing 2% of its GDP to defense, if indeed it is genuinely committing that. There is a conundrum here. Democratic leaders are under pressure to hype the threat precisely because their electorates don't feel themselves threatened. And yet the more they do so, the less convinced their public seem to be. Gordon Brown, when he was prime minister, explained the war in Afghanistan in terms that related that war to domestic security. British troops were fighting, killing, and dying in Helmand to keep the streets of London safe. The public was not convinced, and nor in due course were many of the soldiers. Democracy has so associated itself with material and personal security, with the functioning of liberal capitalism, that it has at the same time separated itself from war. The identity of the state itself is weakened by its reliance on supranational national organizations. This is not a Brexit speech, I hasten to add. <laughs> by its reliance on supranational organizations like the European Union, NATO, and the United Nations. And its passing of what used to be state functions to private companies or to multinational corporations. 
This process applies even within defence uh, with the growth of private military companies. Democracy may, has become associated with peace rather than with war. Democracies are characterised as risk and casualty averse and they are seen as reluctant to be taxed in order to provide funds for national security. So underpinning this whole narrative, if you like, is a set of assumptions, part of which, as we approach the end of the First World War, we might relate to the aspirations of Woodrow Wilson, of, of, of a war to end all wars, uh, the idea, of course, that Wilson became concerned with, which was the idea that American exceptionalism could actually uh, be extended, no longer needed to be exceptionalism, uh, that if countries became liberal democracies, then we would have a world without war. And the consequent flow from that, I don't know if there's a straight line, to what is now called democratic peace theory, uh, which argues uh, with a great de degree of self-confidence, uh, and I'm quoting here uh, Jack Levy writing in 1989, that the absence of war between democracies comes as close as anything as we have to an empirical law in international relations. The believers in democratic peace argue that the belief, I he hesitate to say fact, that democracies rarely go to war with one another is a consequence of the character of democracy itself. Of course, democratic peace theory does not rule out the idea that democracies fight non-democracies. But that itself raises the question of what is a democracy and what not. In 1914, and I've literally just come from Parliament uh, where we have been discussing uh, this in relation to the First World War, in 1914, Britain had the lowest level of male suffrage of any of the belligerents, original belligerents, except Hungary. About 60%, roughly, of British males aged over 21 had the vote. And we need to reflect the fact that many of those soldiers whom we will commemorate uh, very shortly uh, on the 11th of November, uh, many of those were not in citizens in the full sense of the word. In Germany, every male was able to vote. Even states that political scientists would classify as non-democracies are not necessarily states without mass participation. A point true not just of Germany in the First World War, but also true, of course, of Germany in the Second World War. And an issue which now again, and this is an issue which now again concerns us all as we face the rise of populism in the United States and in Central Europe. After all, we will no doubt be confronted with an argument soon where one man's political populism is another man's democracy. The assumption that things are normally otherwise is a product of, if you like, a master narrative of liberalism, uh, itself an inheritor of the Whig view of history that we're on a sort of constant uh, progression towards a better world, uh, an assumption that liberal democracy will produce not just domestic harmony, but also, in due course, international harmony. Its logical, its logical corollary is that democracies find it hard to go to war. There is, after all, in, in many minds, an inherent tension between my subject tonight, between the word strategy on the one hand uh, and the word democracy on the other. Historically, 
Much of this, quite frankly, is absurd. From classical Athens to modern America, democracies have waged war and done so with an abandon uh, that is just as great as any other form of political organization. Much of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War is, after all, concerned with exactly the dilemmas that are thrown up, the problems for Athens as a democracy in waging war coherently and consistently, doing so with a strategy that it remains reasonably sensible and is not subject to the whims of the debate uh, that follow in a democratic structure. But the presumption in Athens was that the people, not the elite, shaped the relationship between policy and war a point of which David Runciman has reminded us in How Democracy Ends. Machiavelli got close to the point in The Prince when he argued that the prince should not rely on mercenaries but arm his own people so that from being merely subjects, they become your own people. And he was able to develop the point more fully in the discourses precisely because here he addressed republics as well as princely government. With the Roman Republic as his example, he argued that an army of citizens would create defensive resilience and good and loyal soldiers because they would be fighting for themselves, not for the ambitions of others. Now, I'm not proposing to take you through the classical and early modern world in order to buttress what I'm saying, but I would like to take the story up from the late Enlightenment, from the 1790s. The idea of the democratic peace, after all, takes its argument from Kant's essay on perpetual peace, which proposed that publics, republics would enjoy peace with other republics. Kant wrote that in 1795, when Europe was still exploring the foothills of a series of wars which would last another 20 years. Wars driven by the French Republic fighting, as it claimed, for liberty, equality, and fraternity against the League of Absolute Monarchs, Monarchies. Despite the horrors which the wars of the French Revolution brought to Europe, most French revolutionaries, at least in 1795, would not have disagreed with Kant. They were waging war, in their eyes, to bring perpetual peace. The reason that France found itself at war at all, they believed, was not the fault of France, but the fault of autocracies and absolute monarchies that failed to recognize the need to democratize and to give power to the people. But against that narrative was a powerful alternative. The notion that democratization was a tool for national mobilization in time of war. Before the revolution, a French army officer, the aristocratic and enlightened Comte de Guibert published a general essay on tactics anonymously in 1770 uh, under his own name in 1772 and then an English translation appeared in 1781. Most of those who quote Guibert and they do so frequently do so by citing a passage which I shall also quote um, and which I, to which I shall return. Let us suppose, this is what Guibert wrote, in Europe there was to spring up a vigorous people with genius, with power, and a happy form of government. A set of people that, to strict virtue and a national soldiery, joined a fixed plan of aggrandizement, 
who never lost sight of that uh, by that system, sorry, I can't read my own writing as usual, who never lost sight of that system, who knowing how to carry on a war with little expense and to subsist by their conquests, was not reduced to the necessity of laying down their arms by the calculations of finance. Guibert then went on to argue that for France, the first step to a successful foreign policy was domestic political reform. How easy it is, he claimed, to have armies invincible in a state where its subjects are citizens, where they cherish uh, and revere government, where they are fond of glory, where they are not intimidated at the idea uh, of toiling for the general good. As an army officer in, 17, in the 1770s, Guibert was, of course, a servant of the king. But he dedicated his book not to him, but as he put it, to my country. He looked forward to the day when all its members would be united. May the ruler and his subjects, he wrote, the high and low degrees of the community, feel themselves honoured with the title of citizens. Guibert died in May 1790. By then, the French Revolution had not reached its apogee in the form of the terror, nor had the transformation of the French state yet republicanized the structure of the French army. By 1795, the developments were much more obvious. Revolutionary France treated those who opposed the logic of its own position, its conflation of the revolution with universal principles, to conclude that its enemies were politically backward. In the Vendée, Catholic counter-revolutionary peasants were not treated as naive and ill-educated, but as part of a conspiracy against the revolution and its government. They were treated as political actors, and about a quarter of a million men, women, and children, or a quarter of the population of the Vendée, were exterminated by the revolutionary armies in 1793-1794 as a result. One French army officer, Captain Dupuis, wrote from the Vendée to his sister in January 1794, wherever we go, we are bringing fire and death. Age, sex, nothing is being respected. Yesterday, one of our detachment burned a village. One volunteer killed three women with his own hands. It is atrocious, but it is for the safety of the Republic and the safety of the public demands it imperatively. Part of the urgency related to the fact that, related to the fact that revolutionary France faced an external threat as well as an internal war. It was simultaneously fighting the war of the first coalition against Britain, France, and uh, Britain, Austria, and Prussia, and also, of course, effectively dealing with a civil war at home. In 1797, a Hanoverian, the son of an uncommissioned officer uh, in the Hanoverian army, but himself serving in the Prussian army, Gerhard von Scharnhorst, published his general reflections uh, on the armies in the Revolutionary Wars and asked why those of France had fared as well as they had done. After all, for a professional soldier, the ill-discipline of the French Revolutionary Armies should have been their undoing. And his response was, that the French army had been transformed by the revolution, by the political impulse given to its army as a result, and by the identification of the soldier with the nation.
For Scharnhorst, as for other military reformers in the following decade and more, citizenship created soldiers with a stake in the nation who were readier to fight and die because they had rights than were the soldiers of pre-1789 autocracies. In the wars against Napoleon, Prussians who were forced to sit on their hands between 1795 and 1806, and again between 1808 and 1813, looked to Spain and Italy for evidence of effective resistance to France, resistance waged by guerrillas, motivated, as they saw it, by national sentiment. And, of course, Scharnhorst uh, was a father figure to one of those Prussians who looked at that situation in frustration, Karl von Clausewitz. Clausewitz shared the frustration of his mentor, Scharnhorst, and of August von Neisenau. Together, they plotted a war of national liberation. Uh, and in February 1812, Clausewitz, frustrated by his king's determination to respond to Napoleon's request that Prussia send troops to Russia, resigned his commission in his own army to join that of Russia in order to fight the French. He wrote a long three-part memorandum to Gneisenau, which called on the German nation to mobilize, without reference to the King of Prussia, to be ready to use terror, and to be prepared to die rather than admit defeat. This was the Neisenau, sorry, the Clausewitz quoted by Hitler uh, in Mein Kampf. He specifically quoted Guibert, even if, uh, as usual, he was an arch-plagiarist, Clausewitz. He did not acknowledge him. He called for a people with genius, with power, and a happy form of government, Guibert's words exactly. This was the Clausewitz, who when, after the war was over, he came to write on war, identified the French Revolution as having put the state's mobilization for war on a new and unprecedented level. The question for him, when he wrote on war, was whether this would be the pattern for the future. From now on, he asked, will every war in Europe be waged with the full resources of the state and therefore have to be fought only over major issues that affect the people? Or shall we again see a gradual separation taking place between government and people. Glasowitz was clear about the contribution. The heart and temper of a nation, to quote him, can make to the sum total of its, political war, its politics, war potential, and fighting strength. And this is where a famous passage in Glasowitz's On War, in book one, on the Trinity, fits in. In that book, in, uh, in book one of On War, Clausewitz described war as being made up of three parts, of passion, of the play of probability and chance, and of reason. And he then associated each of those qualities with three particular groups of actors in war. Passion with the people, the play of probability and chance with the army, and its, commander, uh, and its commanders, and reason with the government. The problem with recent predominantly Anglophone readings of On War is, this deter is the determination to rest it with a vest it in a modern view of strategy that sees a linear relationship between policy and war and an elite relationship 
between generals and politicians in the making of strategy that excludes the people and the roles of passion, uh, with the result that both people and passion become subordinated when we think about how nations go to war. To be fair to those readings of Clausewitz that stress this rational, utilitarian approach, that stress the relationship between war and policy, we need to acknowledge that Clausewitz too, uh, as in the 1820s he began to learn of the pleasures of peace, uh, writing on war uh, in the comfort of his wife's dressing room, uh, which is where he did write on war, um, that he learned to moderate some of his feelings about war, and in particular his hatred of the French. The French Revolution was seen to have brought war, protracted, destructive, and to use a neologism not used then, total to Europe. Preventing revolution could, it seem, prevent war. And separating revolution from war was high on the list of most monarchs when they met at Vienna in 1815. And so the idealistic conflation of citizenship and military service, of political awareness and the defense of the nation, was, if you like, downplayed after 1815. And not just in Prussia, where Friedrich Wilhelm III, uh, who had been so reluctant to go to war uh, with France, uh, remained king. Uh, and indeed tried to undo many of the reforms, particularly in relation to the army, which the reformers Scharnhorst, Neisenau, and Clausewitz, among others, have been responsible for. Armies became less instruments of national mobilization and more tools in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s of counter-revolutionary domestic order. The debate between demo about democratization and war became one bound up above all with the idea of the nation in arms, of military service and its terms. Conscription became less a manifestation of liberalism and political awareness as in its idealized form in the 1790s and more a mechanism for social control. Broadly speaking, when the 1848 revolutions broke out across Europe, the armies of the kings remained loyal. Uh, and it, we forget too often in the run-up to the First World War just how much those armies remained instruments for domestic control. Uh, the army remained the principal recourse of the Third Republic in France until 1921, um, and the Kaiser was wont to remind his guards uh, when he inspected them that he did, of course, expect them to shoot on their own families if he required them to do so, if they behaved in revolutionary ways. By 1914, mass armies could be raised without too much attention being paid to the corollary that they should see themselves as politically aware partners in the making of national strategy. The debate remained most vibrant in France, with Jean Jaurès to the fore, and with other socialists arguing that citizen soldiers could fight purely defensive wars and that this was the purest form of war and the purest form of military organization. But in 1916, Britain could introduce conscription without simultaneously introducing universal male suffrage, the point I've already made, that many of those soldiers who fought for Britain in the First World War were not enfranchised. They were enfranchised 
in retrospect in 1918, but not in prospect as a, cross, as a consequence of their military service. And with incipient war weariness, particularly after the Russian revolutions of 1917, the armies deployed on the Western Front in particular, those of France, Britain, and Germany, all addressed the issue of political education in their armed forces in order to persuade uh, those who were serving them that, of course, they were serving for values and ideologies to which they should cleave. Revolutionary Russia argued specifically that its soldiers needed to be political aware, politically aware. Uh, M.V. Frunzi engaging in a great debate with Trotsky on just this point, Trotsky arguing that we need to put political awareness second to professional competence and therefore we should be ready to have Tsarist officers within the army. Trotsky lost that debate, as he lost much else, of course, as you know. Uh, and by 1932, uh, some units in the Red Army had about 200 hours political education per annum. I don't imagine they were particularly excited about that, but the point remains that it was seen important to have soldiers who understood the causes for which they were fighting. And that idea persisted into the Second World War. Uh, the idea that you needed to be politically aware and politically conscious to be able to fight for the causes of the nation for which you were being asked to lay down your, their, your life. And that wasn't just uh, something that was important to the Wehrmacht or to Soviet Russia, but was also true of the so-called liberal democracies. Uh, Britain and the United States went back to political education in the Second World War, just as Britain had done in the First World War. In the First World War, political education in the British Army was in the hands of the former editor of the Times Education Supplement, uh, in the Second World War, um, it was in the hands of ABCA, as I'm sure you know, with the argument uh, that it might have affected, ABCA might have affected the outcome of the 1945 election, uh, an old and now largely discredited argument. Something, however, really quite important and profound had been happening over that period. Uh, because that point, let's say 1945, seems to me the high point when the idea of the politically aware soldier uh, was to be valued. Because in the thinking of most Western democracies, the way that we came to think of politically aware soldiers in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War was through the prism of insurgency and revolution. In Jean Lartigui's novel, the Centurions, published in 1960. Lartigui, who had himself served in the French resistance during the war and in the French army, portrayed a character called Captain Jacques de Glatigny. And Glatigny defends a brother officer who is accused of becoming a communist while a prisoner of war of the Viet Ninh after Dien Bien Phu. Uh, and in that period of his imprisonment, he had acquainted himself with the principles of revolutionary war. The general says to Captain de Glatigny that the army must, of course, uh, dispense with these sort of people, uh, revert to established traditions, and to separate, as he put it, the sheep from the goats. Glatigny replies, not very well advised to speak to your senior officers in these terms, but he did. In that case, general, were all of us goats, all who were in the, the Mackie in France, 
who served in the First Army or in the Free French Forces or who took part in the Indochina campaign in the fighting units. All who believe that the army uh, depends on the people just as a fish depends on water. That's what Mao Zedong wrote, and it's because we ignored his theories on revolutionary warfare that we deserved our crushing defeat in Indochina. But the process by which the politically aware fighter became suspect began not in the French army in Indochina, but much earlier. The First World War began the process that changed the relationship of established democratic powers to revolution and its place within war. Popular mobilization and political awareness, universal suffrage and the mass press made the people, in inverted commas, full participants in the war. But it also made the commitment of the people a political or potential source of political weakness. In the Napoleonic Wars, the argument had been that revolution had led to war. In the First World War, war led to revolution. The fact that it might do so was a pre-existing fear. I've always understood Gray's expression, if he ever said it, that the lights were going out all over Europe, as an indication in 1914 that he feared exactly that outcome. Uh, Bertrand Holweg, the German Chancellor, expressed his fear of revolution uh, in 1914, and of course the more conservative advisers to the Tsar warned him against war precisely because of the threat of revolution. The moment the war broke out, Germany set out to export revolution to the empires of its enemies, to Britain, France, and Russia. Uh, but it did so not just in a colonial context, it did so also here in Dublin, and of course, um, it put Lenin in a sealed train to Petrograd. Britain did the same, exporting revolution to the Ottoman Empire, and in 1917-1918, the Allies were ready to foment revolution within Austria-Hungary and Germany itself. In other words, democracy, instead of being the mobilizer of the French army, uh, giving it great strength, as it seemed in, in the 1790s and under, under Napoleon, had now become a potential source of vulnerability, something to be worked on. After 1918, Britain's blockade of Germany became rationalized as the instrument that had persuaded the German people to turn against the Kaiser and to overthrow their government in the final stages of the war. And in 1939-40, Britain planned to use economic warfare against Germany once more. However, with the overrunning of most of Europe, the blockade was no longer a possibility. Germany had simply acquired too many resources within Europe for the blockade to be an easier instrument to apply. And instead, by the winter of 1941-42, the strategic bombing offensive had been fashioned into, into an instrument designed to target German civil, civilian morale instead. In 1944, after D-Day, Allied intelligence was searching for the signs of another domestic collapse in Germany, another stab in the back, if you like, uh, of a possible coup against Hitler. Of course, in the Western narrative, the populations of liberal democracies were robust and loyal. It was the populations of authoritarian regimes which were vulnerable and fickle 
and more dependent on this sort of pressure. The presumption here was that the offer of democratization would cause the German people to turn against their own autocratic leaders and embrace the views of their invaders. A presumption, of course, which proved to be wrong in 1944-45 and which also proved to be wrong when applied to Iraq in 2003. Between 1945 and the end of the Cold War, the Western democracies did not have to engage with the role of the people in the making of strategy at any sustained or serious level. Their armed forces were actively engaged in wars, in the wars fought as part of the withdrawal from empire. The promoters of democracy were, if you like, the enemy, the colonial resistance movements, not the powers of Europe or, of course, the United States. Students at American and European universities in the 1960s read Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth and put posters of Che Guevara on their walls. These were the icons of the enemy, not the constituent elements of a trinity in the making of national strategy. At home, nuclear weapons made the people potential targets of attack, as, of course, bombing had made them the potential targets of attack in the Second World War. But they were now perpetually bound as hostages to deterrence. They became passive pawns more than potentially active participants whose loyalties might be affected. And when the people protested against their role in the nexus of deterrence, as some of them did in the 60s and 70s, as they did through organizations like the CND or through opposition to cruise missiles, they were identified with subversive influences, uh, possibly manipulated by the putative enemy, as weakening the state, not as strengthening it. So nuclear weapons demobilized, in some respects, the democratic strengths of Western governments and did so in two very direct ways. First of all, nuclear weapons acted as one element in the swing away from the mass army, a process directly linked here in Britain when the Sands White Paper of 1957 on the one hand embraced the nuclear deterrent, on the other hand uh, implemented the end of conscription. Other states followed along this path somewhat more slowly. The United States, of course, after its defeat in Vietnam, rejected the draft. France, the home, of course, to the idea of the nation in arms, finally ended conscription in 1997-98. Democracies, the democracies of Western Europe, no longer presume today that the going to war would require the active participation of their citizens as a body. I say Western Europe with a slight degree of caution because President Macron uh, has floated the idea of restoring conscription in France. Um, and of course, uh, if we look further east and we look further north to Scandinavia and to the Baltic states, uh, conscription and the notion of national resilience remain an important part of national identity. In other words, the notion that the state uh, can mobilize its people for the purposes of war is still there. But here in Britain, as we're all very well aware, it is conspicuous by its absence. It was not just, however, that nuclear deterrence broke the physical link between strategy and democracy. 
between demanding of people that they serve their, uh, their country in times of war. It also broke the fiscal link, because one of the attractions of nuclear weapons, uh, and one of the continued attractions of nuclear weapons, is that they are a cheap option. Uh, they are a way of maintaining a major military instrument at a containable cost while not engaging in active hostilities. Uh, you might want to engage in the costs of war because you are at war, but what is the point in spending an enormous amount on military equipment when you're not at war? In the 19th century, Robert Peel and, uh, and Gladstone had argued that income tax, introduced originally in Britain as a war tax, would inhibit Britain's appetite for war, and that if Britain went to war and the rate of income tax rose uh, sharply, then that would actually encourage it to end the war. Uh, they didn't prove to be much, there was not much evidence to prove that in practice. Um, but the argument that because taxes had to be approved by Parliament, and that taxation was therefore a form of wider participation in the decision-making process which were all required, gave this, uh, this case that this was a proper mechanism for liberal democracy to control its appetite for war, a great deal of purchase. That relationship was weakened during the Cold War by the reliance on nuclear weapons and seems to me to have been broken definitively since 2003. One of the most remarkable aspects of the wars waged by Western democracies since the 9-11 attacks is that they are presented effectively as cost-free. At no point in 2002-03 were the decisions to go to war accompanied by statements from either the President of the United States or from the Prime Minister of this country as to how they would be funded. Joseph Stiglitz uh, and Linda Bilnes uh, made this point in relation to the United States in a book called The Three Trillion Dollar War. Three trillion was their estimate of the eventual overall costs, including indirect costs, medical costs, opportunity costs, indirect payments for the United States of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The points made by them in relation to the United States clearly apply to the United Kingdom too. But neither Tony Blair nor Gordon Brown mobilized the people of Britain for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan by asking them to fund Britain's military effort through increased taxation or, alternatively, through austerity. This is very different from the historical pattern because Britain, as I've already argued in relation to the use of income tax in the 19th century, even if it didn't have conscription and therefore raise a mass army in that form, did at least ask taxpayers to make their contribution to Britain's military effort. You might not have had to put your life in your line, but you did have to put your hand in your pocket. And what seems to me also striking is when we confronted the crash in 2008-9, nobody for a moment suggested that the waging of protracted war had in any way been responsible for creating national deficits. Contrast the link which we see between financial and economic chaos after the First World War or the challenges of confronting the costs of the Second World War and think how we've never once asked ourselves how we've paid for the wars of the last 15 years. Therefore, both directly and indirectly, the place of democracy in the making of strategy through the active participation of the citizen soldier or through the indirect contribution of the enfranchised taxpayer 
has become marginalized. The effect is that the making of strategy today is no longer Trinitarian in the sense that Clausewitz meant. In other words, what we no longer do is consciously engage the people in the making of strategy. Instead, we have adopted a model of civil military relations designed to reflect one devised in the United States which specifically excludes the people, that sees the making of strategy as the business of senior officers on the one hand and of statesmen on the other. In 1957, Sam Huntington wrote a famous book called The Soldier and the State. Uh, and what concerned Huntington was how America specifically would deal with the issues of civil military relations, having a large army maintained in peacetime, very unusually for the United States, with nowhere to go. And so what he addressed in civil military relations was precisely this elite relationship, what he called objective military control, the need for government to control the actions of its generals, its admirals, and its senior statesmen. And what he specifically rejected was a model of civil military relations that the United States had inherited from the Revolution, and which, of course, was similar to that of France, which required what he called subjective military control. That is the idea that citizens have to be soldiers, and soldiers are citizens, and that the, vert, the combination of civic rights and civil obligations, uh, military obligations, a very enlightened idea of this, an idea from the Enlightenment, should become the symbol of the national will, and that political intent and military capability would be fused. By going for objective military control, he took the focus away from the people and put it back on elites. And that is a model of civil military relations uh, which required, for example, President Obama to sack General McChrystal in 2010 because he criticized the president's strategy in Afghanistan. And what it has left us with is debates about strategy when they become public being presented as spats between chiefs of staff on the one hand and their political masters on the other. And very often it is the spat itself that hits the headlines rather than the content of the debate. Think of the report uh, in which David Cameron was said to have told David Richards when he was chief of defense staff that it was his, the prime minister's job to do the talking. Or think last year in July 2017 when the French chief of defense staff, Pierre de Villiers, de Villiers uh, resigned, uh, the first chief of defense staff in the history of the Fifth Republic to resign because as he put it, he had a responsibility to tell the truth about the threats we must face so that the people of France could better understand them. Macron uh, simply replied by saying that his behavior, de Villiers' behavior, uh, was undignified. This is a model of civil military relations uh, which leaves us without an effective national debate on strategy. And that matters. If the electorate of a democratic state is not implicated in the making of national strategy, it cannot be expected to identify with the objectives of that strategy. Its belief that soldiers are victims, not victors, the perception that we are casualty averse, itself weakens deterrence, and it inhibits national leaders from acting if they are required to need. If our opponents 
believe that there is no national appetite to use force, then our deterrent posture is itself built on sand. Since 2009 and the election of President Obama, we have seen the adoption of more limited means for waging, uh, waging war, uh, wage, uh, for waging what is still presented alternatively as a long war rather than a global war on terror. And we've seen a desire to move to uh, an alternative to boots on the ground. We've seen a desire on the part of Western democracies to prefer a mixture uh, of air attacks, weaponized drones, supplemented by special forces and training teams to impart the necessary military skills to local proxies. That is a solution which elevates means to ends, which makes viable options for waging such wars into a strategy in its own right, which actually doesn't confront how you end these wars or engage them, but simply how you might conduct them. And of course, so far, the evidence is it's not working. Of course, one reason is that it does not, it does not work is, it because, is because it fails to address the war among the people in Rupert Smith's sense. And now those people are themselves leaving the theatres of war to come here to Europe and the United Kingdom. In other words, they're becoming refugees and they're becoming mig migrants. But as importantly, it also doesn't work for the people at home, for our own populations, for our electorates here in Western Europe and the United States. And for this, and I am concluding, I apologize, for this there are four reasons why it doesn't work. First of all, although we've begun to try to articulate an idea of limited war rather than the major big wars uh, that were evoked by the war on terror, the idea of a, a global war on terror, uh, although we've begun to articulate an idea of limited war, our articulation remains totally inadequate. Western governments approve the means of limited war, but our national leaders do not embrace a strategy of limited war, and so means and ends stand in contradiction to each other. They continue, if in doubt, to use the vocabulary of major war, and so continue that contradiction. Secondly, there is the problem that in the Cold War, governments could engage in limited wars, often indeed only using special forces and proxies, and could do so under the radar without the press reporting. Today, the revolution in digital communication and the mobilization of mass media make this effectively impossible. The result is a paradox. Democratic governments confronted one of the most powerful agents for mass mobilization and for democratization, that is the internet, seem to stand transfixed in the headlights and to be uncertain about how to use it or indeed how uh, and see it simply or increasingly simply as a threat. Thirdly, what we are doing relies for its execution on the efforts and readiness to die and to kill of others. In other words, the proxies, whether they be Kurds or free, the Free Syrian Army uh, or the Libyan uh, opponents to Gaddafi or the Afghan security forces, each of whom, of course, have their own political agenda, which is not subordinated to the will of Western governments. By relying on proxies, we effectively separate the waging of war from our own political objectives in that war.
And fourthly, our governments still struggle to produce a narrative which reconciles overseas wars with the needs of national security. With calling wars fought in the Middle East or Central Asia wars of choice, but then clothing them somehow as wars of necessity. In this, there is an essential continuity between Barack Obama and Donald Trump and between David Cameron and Theresa May. Trump fought an election on the cry of America first, but has had, of course, to confront the reality that as the world's foremost military power and one which exercises influence not least through, the ally, through its allies, the United States finds itself globally engaged, whether it likes it or not. When Trump was elected, Britain's then new Prime Minister, Theresa May, beat a path to his door and on arrival in the United States, delivered a speech in which she said that the days of our countries, that is Britain and the United States, intervening overseas in order to remake uh, the governments of people's work better were over. She said that, despite her own government's commitment to the creation of a joint task force, task force by 2025, built around a carrier group, a deployable division, and the appropriate air assets. Where exactly is this task force to go if we're not planning to intervene somewhere? Britain, like the United States, uh, projects its military force in expeditionary fashion. The result is what critics have called gesture strategy. Britain shouts loudly about the use of Novacek against the Scripples in Salisbury, uh, and uh, the United States organized an airstrike in Syria in response to uh, the use of chemical weapons by the Syrian government in Douma, but the gestures are not followed through. Gesture strategy addresses more the domestic audience of the West uh, and, of course, addresses uh, our friends and allies rather than the putative opponents. And it masks something much more worrying than a lack of substance. It fails to address second and third order consequences. It sets out to alarm and mobilize, but not to follow through. It is a cover for strategic incoherence and strategic weakness. Our peoples are right to be confused when their leaders' speeches don't reflect either the state's military capabilities or their potential applications. Thank you very much.